0: all good all good all right what's
1: up everyone welcome back to another north leeds jits podcast today we are again talking to uh, Matt from a uh, Cattle on the Soccer and the last North League Chicks Podcast fame. <laughs> yeah, part two. Part two part so d- If you haven't watched part one, this is um, this isn't a standalone. You probably do want to go uh, watch the, the last one and get the, the backstory and the context would be great to have. Because so we're literally gonna pick it up right where we left off. Because we
0: went from like zero we went from a hundred job jobs to the zero kids leaving the job. A big idea, dream to the biggest standalone soccer school that anyone knows of, thousand kids a week, mental. Um so if you wanna know how the hell you do that, you need to go back and listen to the first episode. Today, as I understand it we're going to you, we're gonna talk about some slightly different topics, right? Matt wants to share his ideas on kind of kids and coaching kids, I think. Yeah, we know we you know, we told a lot of Matt's journey then, but we didn't really I think
1: get to touch on um what he's kinda of, the things that he's learned from that journey and his thought processes now so i think um learning that kind of stuff and the things you've learned over that journey that you apply now would be like invaluable really so cool. if that's okay we can talk a bit about absolutely fine right, way so yeah we, we left the um the last bit and and catalan is you know incredibly uh, successful school for you like what were the what are the what are the things that led to that success? Because Mike saw me a lot before, uh, and you touched on it briefly uh, at near the end of the podcast there um, about how much you care about these kids. And as a, as a quick, maybe aside thing from me, like something that stayed in my head loads from a podcast I did with uh, uh, my friend Kane Daniels. He's a strength and conditioning coach for like Huddersfield Giants, and K- Kingston Rovers, and things like that. And he said, um, it's not his quote, but they. Don't know how much they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care and it kind of seems like you got you have that same philosophy with the kids like you care for them outside of the realms of what they're doing in football like you know that they know their, their favorite superheroes like things like that is that kind of a philosophy you're living yeah by I, i'd well? say so
2: and, and this is like a stolen quote as well but there's one along the lines of you know child you know may forget or will forget what you teach them but they'll never forget how you made them feel right And that's just so true. So, you know, the football, the skills that you show them, the techniques that they pick up, these things will hopefully echo and resonate over time and be a foundation for them to upskill and and enjoy the sport and prosper. Um, But in terms of how you make the kids feel, as a coaching approach, I think your first and uh, most quintessential responsibility is to, to kindle a positive relationship between the child and the sport, and you are the you are a, a cog in that machine, you are a catalyst for that process to happen. Mm-hmm. So you're almost a middleman between the kid and the thing he's trying to enjoy. And if you if you do if you do that well and do it effectively, well then what will happen is you will you will create this this perpetual exchange between the child and what the sport has to offer. And the experience of the sport, which will, yeah, which will compound over time. So the, the aim of a Catalan soccer session is for a kid who's there for his first class or his hundredth class, or you know, a kid, any kid who's in attendance, is to inspire the kid and to compound that love for the game. So he's more like more likely to go and practice away from his Catalan soccer session. So you're trying to plant a seed, which the child will then go and sort of cultivate and grow, whether it be home practice, seeking out opportunities to play with friends, you know joining the school team, you're trying to get them to fall in love with it and to stay in love with it because there's there's so much there's so much out there um, which could be potentially harmful to that relationship with the sport or with physical activity, whether it be bullying, overbearing, coaching or management practice, whether it be parents that apply, too much pressure or unrealistic, unfair expectations, whether it be just a lack of opportunity to play, you know, some kids can't play football on the playground now, because health and health and safety culture and, and such. Um, what you're trying to do is you're trying to offset all those barriers and put what put whatever input you can into the child so that he comes away from your football class a little bit more obsessed than when he first came in. And that's the mission. Mm. You know, did when you kind of set out to
1: do uh, teach from football, did did you have any idea of like how important that would be to like the things you just mentioned, like knowing whether a parent is being putting too much pressure on, or is this kid being bullied? Like, did you have the foresight to know that, or was it for, or for you was it just like I am going to teach football? Yeah. yeah, definitely. Yeah, no, yeah. good
2: question. It, it comes from just come from experience and education as well. I'd I'd say that some coaching experience, experience needs to have some context, it needs to have a frame. So sometimes you see and you witness things, but until someone actually frames it for you and breaks it down, then maybe you don't truly understand it. So, yeah, initially the, the motivation, like my own personal motivation, was I just enjoyed football and coaching football was a natural avenue to explore that. And then, yeah, as you work with kids and parents and you're in the environment and you, you, you see things happening to children and, and you pick up on body language and you're sort of exposed to a, a broad you know, child experience and you see it through their lens, then, of course, all these other things mm-hmm. seems well, that's like that's come up. It seems like that's such...
1: Uh, it must be so important to the things that you do to, to know and understand those things. And yet, when if you told someone I'm a football coach, they probably wouldn't think of like, oh, this person's been able to see a whole range of different kind of things that might be going on outside of just the things that are on the pitch, right?
2: Yeah, I think I think the coach is that do it best, and you know, I'm certainly not um, claiming to be one of the best. I, you know, enjoyed a modest amount of success in. What I do, and we connect with a lot of kids. But I think just the best, the best coaches in general. I think um, you know, you, you become a psychologist. Mm. You have to because you have to understand that the child. In essence, is the instrument. You know, you're trying to you trying to play the instrument to get the right chords and the right tunes. From a performance point of view, you're trying to get the input right to get the output right. And and the, the psyche of the child and insecurities and motivations and. Behavioural tendencies and temperament and all these things, that's the sort of map, that's the little maze that you're trying to work through to get the kid who couldn't do something now to be able to do something, or to, to try and get him to believe that he can do the thing you're trying to teach him. So if if you're serious enough about it, then you end up exploring the child because you know, just knowing lots about football isn't enough. And that becomes quite self-evident when you're working with young coaches, sorry, young um, young children. That you're just knowing the subject matter and not understanding people. There's there's a disconnect there. Yeah. So how, how is
0: that balance? Because you know, with it, sorry, Mike. no, no. On? I was going to say, I was going to pick up on a point there. It's slightly different. But when you talked about kind of playing that instrument, it made me think about watching you and, and me as well as a coach in a group setting with maybe like 10, 15, 20 kids. You're like a conductor mm. and it's like you're conducting an orchestra and each kid is in a different, playing a different instrument. They're all very different. But you're trying to bring them all together to get an output harmony. together yeah. and create a harmony, right? And that's a skill. And you, like you say, you could be the most knowledgeable football coach in the world. Don't mean you're the best coach, right? Mm. The best coach can, can just tinker with each little player in a little way, or like was on the mat, you know, can speak to each child in a slightly different way to get the same kind of output. And that's the true kind of essence of a great coach, I think. Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, similar, similarly, my, my question kind of leads on nicely from that was, you know, what? that's all great and it sounds very you know manageable if you've got, you know, 20 kids or something. But when you've got a 1,000 uh, kids a week, and
2: you're dealing with those kind of numbers. How how do you manage that? Well, I think it's a question of of culture. So that, so you can you can systemize things. You know, to the nth degree, you can blueprint. Um, it, it comes down to culture, and obviously, culture comes from people, and you know, people. The people in your business have been recruited. They've been through some kind of process whether it be a formative process where you've you've upskilled them and trained them from pretty much zero competence or whether they've come in with a good skill set of coaching and a good set of character traits and um, the, the only way you can i suppose deliver values and deliver at scale is to have the right people that have that that share or or certainly willing to adopt you know your outlook on on the on on the ethos side Mm. and on on the teaching side so you know I I won't pretend that every child that's ever been through the door every single class for the past 10 years has always had the best coaching in every single moment of every single session um, because you can't do all things for all children all the time but what you can do is you can do the best job you possibly can um, push your percentages up so if 98% of your interactions with the children. Bear in mind, there are thousands of interactions happening, Um, even on a micro level of body language and, you know, sort of the way you might look at a child or your tone of voice. all these nuances, all you can do is aim to do the best job you possibly can as often as you possibly can. Um, You know, aim high, fall slightly short. Um, So, yeah, so it comes down to people and and I think over time, as a business operator, don't want to move too far away from the, you know, the sort of teaching philosophy that we're talking about here, but um, if you're talking about scaling teaching to a large number of children, you you have to find the right people, you have to give them the right message, you have to set the right example as a coach or a leader, you have to challenge bad practice where you see it, you have to give people honest and critical feedback where you feel that they've let the kids down or they've not delivered to the standards that you expect there's a huge technical element to it but people have to come in and and see the beacon and they have to be given the right message
1: Uh, and those things that you listed was that i mean did you always know these things were they tough lessons to learn
2: how how did you learn these things well i think it it comes from like a variety of sources i think seeking out role models and people that do it like better than you and analyzing how they do things and why they work is really important. So there are coaches in the football game, um, sort of a national level, people like Pete Sturgis, John O'Press, uh, Richard Richard Bate, um, people like that. I think watching these guys yeah. and trying to assimilate the things that right. you know they do well. To being a student at the same time, as yeah. being a yeah. teacher. With, yeah, with yeah. some of the more written theory stuff that you've got to look at. And then there's practical, there's just no substitute for... Going and working with people. Um the only way to tune a guitar is to pluck the string and have a listen and move it and try again. As a coach, at what point do you would you kind of know if you've got like
1: an exceptional child, like, oh, this kid's different? Can you tell
2: that from like three years old? Can you tell that from four years old? Like what can you tell? in in terms of performance factor and skill, yeah. So it's technically exceptional. Yeah. Okay, cool. So we'll like development, and you guys will probably see this in Jitsu and stuff. Is um, development is definitely non-linear. So, and, and sometimes the sometimes the environment and the, the the playing environment in particular can can skew and bias to you know, certain skill sets. So, if you've got a three four year old, he might look really athletic. He might dominate the other kids. It um, might just have, so like spatial awareness at quite a young age. perception and like,
0: stuff as well,
2: yeah. Yeah, properception, just, just basic quantitative skills can make a four year old look like a world beater. Right. Um, because he can get there quicker, he understands, he can orientate himself. And so the kid can be a really effective four year old. Um, as a seven year old, if you're playing small formats, then a kid who's technically good on the ball, is good at shielding, mastery, can screen, protect. A kid who doesn't lose possession really stands out. A kid who can recognise danger and turn or, you know, whatever it is. And certainly kids who can score goals. There's all different performance indicators in kids. So it's quite, I'm not trying to dodge your, your question, okay. but just to expand on what exceptional is.
0: Well, we, I mean, is, from a jiu-jitsu context, we, we would look at a, uh, a little champion. And our first indicator, I think, on whether or not they have got good potential is movement can they move well? Mm-hmm. If, it, if someone can move well, then they've got potential. If they can't move well, and that's coordination, mm-hmm. perception, balance, mm-hmm. agility, all those Speed. things. If you, yeah, if you've not got that kind of, if you think about a pyramid with skill at the top, you've got to have the broadest platform, right? To, be able to stack these things on top. So I think when I'm looking at, someone, when you're an adult, and they come in, like my brother came to trade the other day, he won't mind me saying this, like he moves really well. Like, I hate to say it, he moves really well, like naturally well. And so he's got potential to be great at jujitsu, like straight away, compared to someone who doesn't move. Is that well. because you used to chase him around the house? He's been trying to avoid my strangles for So when I think on the child thing, like, is it that? So, or does that change?
2: Uh, I mean, it changes. The thing is, if, if you've got a kid who's, you know, highly athletic, there's all different models for like talent identification. So, you know, with the professional clubs that I used to work at, it'd be it'd be attitude, ability, athleticism. And so their argument was that you need all three or you certainly need to be, you'd be better in one than the other, but you need to be strong, strong across those three domains. Um, so there were some kids with an exceptional attitude who aren't particularly athletic or have huge ability. So Gary Neville, look at the, mm. if you think of like the recruitment criteria for Alex Ferguson over the years, you probably have to say that Yes, there were players with ability in his team, but he's always had a core of people that were reasonably athletic, but super high and exceptional in terms of attitude. People like James Milner. Obviously, the guy's built like a bit of a tank and reasonably athletic, but he's not he's not Ronaldo Quick. He's not Gareth Bale. He's a, he's a strong ox of a football player, but it's, it's attitude, isn't it? So, And then you've got players with ability who, without the attitude, Ravel Morrison, you've got Adol guys like this that are just magicians with a football that disappear off the planet, um, and then you've got you know guys that have again super um, super athleticism who struggle to make complex decisions at speed. So sometimes you see the kid that can move, but you know I think any kind of competitive sport requires higher degrees of fle- f- you know fluid thinking, mm. fluid intelligence. So you're trying to look across the spectrum of traits in the performer and some kids are just really clever if you can help that kid get a bit quicker and he's got a good attitude he's got just as good a chance as a kid who's you know really athletic who maybe doesn't have much skill and doesn't have the best temperament for learning so it's quite a difficult analysis well if you had
0: if you had the answer it would be yeah, be, you wouldn't be running Catalan soccer, but yeah, you'd be, yeah. you know, would be, you'd be, you'd yeah. be it, you'd be it wouldn't you? I mean, that if you, and that's why it's, it's subjective. Like you know what I mean? People look for certain things, and, and that can change, can't it? There must be in football because of the kind of the zero point zero one percent and all that kind of stuff. And jiu jitsu is very different. So there must be a must be a cut off in age where children, if they haven't developed to a certain degree across those traits miss out I mean there's the odd one with the Jamie Vardy's that come through later yeah, on yeah. but but they're still pushing right mm-hmm. I mean Catalan's I understand it mate as my children have obviously been students of yours you only take kids to around about 12-13 that, that's a facility thing is it
2: uh, the, yeah there's, there's a few a few variables there so I think pitch size plays a factor and kids enjoy you know bigger formats the older they get they want to shoot from further away kick the ball longer and have more open games but that's not everything because you know there's more adult footballers playing 5 a side in the country now than there is 11 a side you know even older people enjoy that so but it's a factor um, GCSEs education right. social factors um, parents being willing to travel you know if, if these kids are serious about football they could be training with the team once a week playing a match on a Sunday you know as kids get older it, it's fair to say and being a parent myself, you know, I, I have to rope myself into this sort of generalisation, but you probably have to say that parental support and keenness and um, enthusiasm for these things slowly diminishes. And as the kid gets to age 12, 13, 14, 15, I think parents are just less willing... You know, Well, why they've, do they've you been, think that, think that is? 12, because I think yeah. that is. Well, They're just worn out. Well, I think they've... they've there's, there's a bit of cynicism around it, you know. I think those parents that are in it for, you know, helping the child explore the dreams and aspirations when they're younger, by age 12, 13, 14, majority of kids have realised they're not going to be Ronaldo. This sort of innocence and naivety, the hopeful optimism that they will be the next big thing, as pretty much you know, reality sets in for the parent, for the kid. Um, and people have busy lives, man. You know, it's mm. difficult to get down Kirksler Road at six o'clock and. If you're, if you're already taking your kid to football another two, three times a week and he's doing his school stuff and he's got his education to think about, I think just participation in extracurricular sports after the age of 12, 13, I think we're just part of a broader societal drop-off yeah. at that age group, whether it be motivational um, realities for, for teenage kids or whether it be sort of parental priorities or whether it be you know other educational pressures and stuff, I think. Yeah, yeah, it,
0: it does drop off, that kind of age group. We see that. Probably I mean, multivariate
2: equations. Yeah, we see that.
0: You know, our, our juniors and teens programs is probably the least, like, take-up, right? And that's, yeah. I think, similar. You know, those mm-hmm. kids are focused on other things. Mm-hmm. Younger, the more... And their parents are more willing to kind of bring them and try something new because you want to expose your kids to as many mm-hmm. things, don't you? I also, I think, you know, for us with that, like,
1: uh, if you, a lot of uh, juniors and teens if they are the kind of sport sports inclined, they've already kind of found something that they're into. Yeah, the playing rugby. Yeah. It's
0: narrowed,
2: hasn't
1: it? Yeah. Whereas like, you know, three-year-olds, <laughs> they'll, they'll just dive right in if they want to do something because there's not many things that are offered for three-year-olds in sport sporting kind of class ways. Um, but, but for you, Matt, I, I, we'll be kind of saying that stuff. I was wondering for like exceptional players, uh, well, there's two sides to this coin. Have Have you ever had to have conversations um, with kids and parents with like, hey, you could be really good but you just need to like put your finger out and put the work in the kind of thing or have you alternatively had to like dash someone's dreams and be like I know you love playing man and, I, and I'll support you <laughs> as much as I can but the reality is you're not gonna you know it's not okay the-
2: yeah fair question so so I I can be proud of the fact that I've never imprinted or installed limiting beliefs in any child so I, I appreciate you have to be Give realistic feedback to children, mm-hmm. but I think it's it'd be an absolute sin for any educator of young people across any sector or sport to to tell a kid what he can or can't be in the future. I mean, some, you might have your your beliefs, you might have a degree of certainty that this kid. You, know, you can look at a thirteen year old and say you will never be as quick as you say ball. You can you can't say that objectively, but because the the breadth of attributes that can get you to be a professional footballer is so broad. A kid who can't run might be a really good thinker. You know, Iniesta's not exactly a um, an Adonis of a, for those of you that know Andre Iniesta, the guy's like a five foot seven, little bald headed, skinny Spanish guy that just turns a football pitch inside out and and boozles the opposition. So you, you can't... Because there are so many avenues into football and, and you can get success from such a broad range of traits, some of those traits come to fruition at different times. You know, anyone who's... If you want to Google now, a picture of Harry Kane as a 10-year-old, someone might have told Harry Kane yeah. at some point... i that picture. Look, son, you know, you, <laughs> you mm. can't run. Now, he's not explosive now. He's got a bit of a stridey pace about him, but you know, that growth split's just around the corner. You never really know what a kid might become. And I don't think it's healthy or I don't think it's responsible for any coach or teacher to say, I mean, what you can say to a kid is, look, at at this moment in time, you know, in in a measure against your peers or if you're aspiring to be an academy player, you can say, look, you're not as quick as the other kids objectively. You know, not to 20 metres, you're not as quick. You can't kick it as far. You're gonna get knocked off the ball. Your body mass is. You're gonna struggle, and you know you're not making decisions quick enough. But that's at this moment in time. I don't
0: think you should ever shut the door on a kid. Um, And also, I think the the point you made in part one of this about your aspirations for kind of Catalan as well. You know, you don't have to play for England to be a professional footballer. Like you know, you saying you don't have to referee for Premier League, but. You know, just making a living from football, you're a professional football coach. So, you know, a child might not be the next Andre Esther, but he might play for Colchester Town and get paid two grand a week, playing mm-hmm. professional football mm-hmm. and doing something he loves and be the envy of all his mates mm-hmm. and he's playing a lower league football. You know, that's still an amazing thing to do, isn't it? When you think about if that was your dream as a child, you realise your dream,
2: you're getting
0: paid to go and train and play football every day—what mm-hmm. an amazing thing to do! Yeah, a hundred percent. And
2: just to probably finish off on that, I mean, you've said it's a question that often comes up, probably from people that are outside of that that football that football world, you know, the bubble that is football. I think because the stuff that is put in front of Joe public is, you know, football is sensationalised. You know, the millionaires, the billionaire club owners, the football grounds, the World Cups the the boots that you see advertised for three hundred and fifty quid a pop it's it's been so heavily um you know monetized and capitalised that I think people from the outside think that, that that is their perception of football, right? So just like people might think Brazilian jiu-jitsu and all they know of that is Conor McGregor and two hundred million dollar fights and stuff, but it can do so much more for people that yeah. will never reach that, you know, sort of almost marginal end of the sport so yeah we we do we have had kids come through the programme that are currently at Everton Leeds United Liverpool under 18 16s that have gone on to be exceptional in terms of the you know the performance performances that they're capable of putting out um, but yeah in terms of measuring what success looks like I think like Mike said it's, it's there's a lot of success and a lot of positive outcomes from football whether that's
0: I mean, bringing that back to our kind of world, right? Like the, the the people who listen to this, probably some of our members, right? Brand new, never even been in this academy yet. They, one of them, many of them could easily be British champions within the next year. Easily. I know that. If they committed to Jiu-Jitsu, they could be British champions. Now I know football's a much bigger thing to break into, but it's the same kind of thing. They don't have to be Conor McGregor. They don't have to be the UFC world mm-hmm. champion. They could be the champion of Great Britain in this sport. Within a year, mm-hmm. a white belt. Nothing to stop them doing that, is there? They've got the potential to do that if they work really mm-hmm. hard, and and I think a lot of children have the potential if they're prepared to work out hard and and don't have those barriers placed in front of them, right? I think so. I think I think footballers, you know,
2: jiu-jitsu athletes. I think it's quite apparent, and there's lots of examples of how quickly a, a player or performer can develop when when belief is is you know put into them when when someone believes in them and you see it with professional players when the manager likes a player plays a player gives him opportunity gives him the number nine shirt and he grows into the role and that happens you know with players like kevin de bruyne getting shipped out from chelsea you know it becomes the main man at word of bremen or wherever it is that wolfsburg and then um, comes back to the premier league and just sets the world on fire so I think you've got to believe in yourself. Sometimes we all need someone else to believe in us too. I think in terms of exceptional kids from football, I think that's where a lot of the emphasis is and that's where a lot of the analysis is. I think if you look at the, that's where a lot of the attention tends to go from people from the outside and on the inside of the game. You look at some of the academies recruiting kids from ages four, three, four, five years old, select elite TOTS groups and stuff. it's, It's a race to the bottom um to find talent as early as possible for the commoditization of the kids and you know to sort of win that it's it's, it's an asset arms race almost isn't it get the best kids as early as you can as quick as you can Mm. for us guys we we see exceptional people and exceptional performers and there are exceptional parts of you me mike and we're all exceptional in different ways but um I thought um, something you said there was actually really
1: powerful um, about you wouldn't put your own kind of like bias or thing onto a kid, your own stamp kind of thing. Uh, It reminded me of a Bruce Lee quote. It was uh, a a good teacher protects his student from his own influence, um, which I thought kind of – I think he was talking a a bit broadly than that, but um, it kind of reminded me of what you were saying there. Do you kind of feel
2: like you sometimes will – I guess protect your students from your own influence. In yeah, way? you try to. I mean, um, you could. Yeah, you could sort of bring this back to like one of the Jordan Peterson and rules for life. Be precise with your speech. I think it's the responsibility of any teacher, even even as a parent. You know, Mike as a parent will understand this. Not not to imprint your own bias onto someone. So it's like you know, um, psychotherapists and stuff. I think they actually have to receive psychotherapeutic. Tr- like training to make sure that they're not passing on mm. their own prejudice, their own bias, mm. their unlimited beliefs into some that they're trying to treat. And we all do this without thinking. It's unconscious bias. It right? uncon- yeah, exactly. Yeah, And you'll never remove that because without sterilizing your personality from all its past experiences, I think there are good things you can pass on and there are bad things that you can pass on. Sometimes, you know, you can be teaching the child something or telling them something from a place of pure intent but you know it might not work for that particular child so you do try and be as neutral and as objective as you possibly can and it's you know dealing with people isn't it you're never gonna you're never gonna get everything right and sometimes you will say things to people um, or children that you're teaching which they might receive in a different way to which you intended it that's just part of that's just part of it. But I suppose as a mentor and, and coach, if you work with that person for long enough in a in a you know progressive way, then hopefully we can see the impact of the things that we've said, such and then there's an opportunity to to fix and course correct and change and see how things land,
0: and then help them reinterpret perhaps. Mm. And it's such a critical uh, relationship, is this, and we've got to talk. We've got to dwell on this a little bit. So you know, I mean, a parent's you know relationship with a child is is critical of course to their well-being and health but a coach's relationship with a child is fundamental to that child's development long term into adulthood and beyond and how they become parents how they become coaches there's a great book I was bought by my my brother-in-law when I um when I, my first child was born with Austin was born called raising boys by steve Biddulph. and that talks about the the critical importance and actual psychological evidence of uh, particularly boys when they get to a formative age of like nine to 14, if they don't have strong male role models, so I can't speak to the female side of this, but purely on, on the boy side that are not family members. So they need the coach, the teacher. If they don't have that, then they are predisposed to not be as successful as those kids that do. You know, it's critical that our children have these people outside of the family groups that they can get that positive energy from, and get those limitless kind of aspirations from, and get that kind of positive kind of injection once, twice, three times a week. If they don't have that, then we're not we're not doing a we're doing our children a disservice. So I think you know any parent should be seeking. I know this. Matt's you know been my both my boys' coach, and I, I see the value in it. You know, and I think sometimes as parents we want to be all things to all men for our kids. We want to be the protector, the provider, the coach, that you can't do it all, the teacher, you can't do it all. You've got to outsource it to people who are professional and do it well and see your child in a different way that we see them ourselves, right? And you've certainly done that for my kids, and so thank you for that. Um, and we hope to do that for other people's children, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, just kind of speaking of,
1: uh, when we had uh, also on the podcast today, you know, his work ethic... Uh, is uh, it must be quite ins- well, it's inspiring to me and humbling, I guess, to, to, to as well. Um, how do you, when you see a kid who's you know, ten working that hard? How, how does that kind of make you feel?
2: Well, I think just seeing any human being apply themselves to anything in such a possessive, meticulous, driven, ambitious way is, is always an inspiration, isn't it? I think seeing seeing it from a ten year old boy mm-hmm. is. Um, it is something to marvel really. I think it's, it's something that, which is quite rare. I think it's become become quite um, quite scarce in today's landscape of, of kids. I think kids have so much to do these days and there's so many distractions so readily available. There's so many other gratifying things, you know, that, that are far more, you know, entertaining and, and perhaps um, more popular to do um, than just kicking a ball around by yourself. I think um, it is becoming more and more rare, probably in, in you know, English, British culture. Um, so I, when, I, when I see and hear of, of Awesome doing these things and, and other kids in the Catalan programme, of which there are there are a few, uh, it, you know, it's, it's reassuring. It's reassuring that the work that you're doing is not falling on deaf ears. You know, the, the hopes that you can give kids a really uplifting experience and that that will then go and amplify their appetite and drive more practice at home. When you see examples of that working and actually come to fruition, it's, it's a motivating thing for, for any coach, you know, to see that the kids that you're working with really mean business. And I think you've got to, I think you've got to match that commitment. And you know, I think you're accountable to it. Mm-hmm. I think when you know that there's a kid coming into your class who's literally spent the past seven days, relentlessly practicing the thing that you showed him last week, like, you, you've got to pay attention. It's no good just like giving him a ball and just sending him off and, you know... Well,
0: it would be unfair, check. wouldn't it? Yeah, it'd absolutely. Be well, yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you didn't plan your class and you're not doing that child, you know, you're not meeting them, uh, you know, halfway, are you? No. You know de- de- I mean? Definitely not. And, and
2: uh, you, you owe it to the kids as well, you know, to, to take their development as seriously as they take it. So we, we have at any soccer school, you know, but particularly at Catalan we have a real mix mixed motivation audience. You've got some kids that are coming in that aren't particularly passionate about football, but it's just a really nice environment. They make friends, they're getting, you know, sort of physical exercise. The parents enjoy coming. It's a bit of a social community thing going on. Um, and for those kids, you know, you don't you don't need to try to think of the right way to, to put this but you don't need to prioritise certain narrow, specific technical development issues in the same way that you do for a kid like Orson. So a kid like Orson keeps any coach on his toes because the thing that you gave him last week, he's probably mastered. So you need to have the next thing ready to give him, or you need to have the next development sort of milestone ready in your head for him to move toward. You know, for kids that are coming in playing casually, it's, they're probably still working on the same basics that they did last week. They're just as important, but you're just coaching those kids with a, you know, with a different set of development, not priorities, but considerations, really. And it's a different angle on development. Some kids are quite relentless and narrow, specific, technical-driven, and then other kids are just enjoying football for the essence of what it is.
0: And um, yeah. I think the thing I think when I reflect on it, just talking there about you know, awesome specifically about what he's doing or any child who is practicing really hard. He goes back to the Jordan Peterson thing. It's the delay gratification thing. You know, kids can get, you know, that gratification instantly and that, you know, that injection of feel good by going on an iPad or going on YouTube or playing a game, you know, whatever they play to go into the, out in the rain when it's two degrees and kick a ball against a wall because in, 15 years' time, you hope you're playing for a team and getting paid. That's, that's well, it's, weird. It's the marshmallow test to the extreme, isn't it's it? It's like, you know, for a 10-year-old to have, to be able to forecast that out and be prepared to suffer, I mean, it is sacrifice. You know, because, you know, I'm sure Orson awesome sometimes would much rather be eating chocolate sat on the couch. Mm-hmm. But to drag yourself out in the cold on your own and do that, it takes a certain type of person, <laughs> yeah, man. it does a certain type of person all, all credit to him for doing it
1: as a uh, as a teacher when you've got a driven kid like that orson or or any of your other kids otherwise who have like a good potential how do you know when you kind of you're pushing them enough to get to where they to so they can reach their potential and then when you push them too far where they just they rebel against it a bit too much or you've Breaking them a bit too much physically, or, or
0: that, that's how. This yeah. is the question that I ask myself all the time as a parent. It's awesome. That's a great question. Well, where's the line?
1: Yeah, how do you know, how do you how do you know when you when you're pushing them too hard? Well, or, I you know? think
2: I think it is essentially a a process of you know feedback, and that there is there is no right and wrong. And the thing is, you know, a, a, a bit of a- extrinsic motivation, let's call it that. You know, a push um from a parent or a coach. It might actually be what a kid needs on a Monday afternoon after school, but it might not be the time and the place on a Friday. If he's had a hard time off his teacher and he's he's had a bit of teasing from his friends. Um, and I think I think what it comes down to is I think there's got to be th- your best friend in, in in that type of process is is, is dialogue. There's got to be a healthy discourse between the coach and the learner or the parent and the son. Um, it comes down to communication. Now, some of it is, is—is I mean, you can't not communicate, as, as a theory. Some of it comes down to a dad being able to read the body language of his son. And some of it comes down to um, the coach being able to do that. Um, and I think it's, it's this game, but again, it's, it's just so deep psychologically, isn't it? That you've, you've got to push buttons to see what works. And sometimes you push the button and you reflect on it and you didn't get the response you thought you were going to get and you think you've done more harm than good. And I think being able to critically self-reflect on your own actions and your own interventions and analyse them objectively, you know, with the child at the centre of that or the athlete at the centre of that, then review them and then figure out what you might do next. I, I, think, I think it's just that it is an iterative process and I don't think that there is a line. I think the line is different from kid to kid. I think it's, I think it's different from day to day. I think it's different essentially from hour to hour. Um, I think the best coaches and the best managers in football, in particular, I think they know the right is, is getting the, the half t- half term or time team talk right, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Is knowing what the players need to hear. Is it is it um, you know kick up the backside? Is it hammer on the shoulder? Is uh, it any do, given do, Sunday? Yeah, yeah, you know, I see, <laughs> yeah, you know do, is it arousing speech? Do, do you speak to the ego? You know, do you speak to um, the child inside? Do you um, do you give them a telling off? What's going to get a rise? And and I think I think essentially being inflexible is would be a problem. Mm. I think if you're flexible in your approach, and and it's a there's reciprocity in that process. The player's talking to you. The kid feels that the father is approachable enough to tell him how he feels about how the dad is acting toward you know his his regime or his progress or whatever that may be I think I think there's got to there's got to be healthy discourse healthy dialogue I think you've got to feel your way through it a little bit I don't think you can just prescribe the, I think, the approach
0: I think a good coach works well with parents too and it's like a bit of a team thing right like certainly this is what we offer to our as I know this is what you've done for me with Awesome particularly is that you know if if I'm if I'm concerned about a behavioural trait or whatever I can turn to the coach and say coach maybe Coming I mean, from you, what would you suggest? And maybe something from the coach would have the same impact. But from me, from the parent, it gets the opposite reaction. And certainly for our little champions, I you know I'd hope that parents would be able to come to us and say, "Look, we've noticed a drop off in interest at school. Is there anything you can do to try and help that?" And of course, that we will. Well, we will talk to our little champions about that, and we'll try and. Do it from a different angle, and I think good coaches and good parents kind of work together to get the best outcome for the child, right? And we're both invested in a slightly different way,
2: yeah. I'd say so. There are examples of successful Premier League footballers and top professionals attributing their success to, um, in large part to a push your parent, you know. Mm. Um, there are some players that say, without my dad pushing me all the way, I wouldn't be here. Um, you know Floyd Mayweather, guys like that. How much of it is the fact that his dad was a boxer, and how much of it is just Floyd Mayweather Jr. as 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 a performer? Um, you know, we'll never know because there's no, you know, test experiment to compare the two with and without. So yeah, I think I think essentially it it can be difficult to know how far to push a player and how to push them um, because everybody's like there's there's an elasticity to motivation. I think it, there is a snapping point where you know, you put the player at risk of just, just hanging up his boots and just not wanting to play anymore. So, but I think you've got to keep a close eye on things. I think one of the worst things you can do as a parent or a coach is assume that kids are fine just because they're turning up and putting the boots on. Um, I think as kids get older, it becomes more difficult. So, particularly sort of in young boys, they get a bit more insular between age sort of 12 and 14. They tend to speak to the, the parents less and it's all part of the I think the biological brain development of you know getting ready to leave the family unit and you know to sort of start to emotionally distance from parents and things so that's that a very difficult age you know to find out what a teenage boy is thinking and but essentially it tells in the performance it tells in the body language You know, they, they might not be able to verbalize it but you know, if you're paying close attention, that's all you can really do. Mm. Um, and, and again, just be willing to look at your own approach and just question. You know, you've got to have a, load of, a lot of different tools in, in in your locker. You've got to be able to give player a player a calculated telling off. You've got to be able to tell them what they need to hear. The, you've got to figure out when they need a compliment. It's a bit like any relationship, isn't it? Yeah. Husband and wife, father and son. Um yeah, so it's got it's got to be a holistic approach to motivation. I think where you look at all the different constructs and
1: do you, do you find at Catalan you oftentimes happen to uh, deal with kids that are like unmotivated or undisciplined that are just kind of like their parents are bring them along but they're just not they're not really keen on being
2: there or. Uh... Well, I, th- I think we see that less than most because mm. what what we accept is that so some, some kids just just a highly motivated yeah. you know quite ex- extrovert. And they've got an appetite for new things, and they'll they'll come in. They're quite obedient, and they sort of embrace just to a natural exuberance anything that you put in front of them. You know, some kids are coming in with a lack of self esteem, confidence. It can be quite introverted, and if it's a subject or or a topic where they've had any kind of sport where they've had a, a negative experience in the, pa- in the past, you know, kids bring all these these right. these bits of baggage and and and. These things in into the into the football domain, into the sort of classroom, and you've got to you've got to try and strike the right chord. I think I think essentially the kids that we get in to the to the football environment is kids are typically quite motivated to do what we're asking them to do. Essentially, if we'd have said, "Look, here's a ball," there's twenty kids, you know, ten v ten you know, there's red team, yellow team, off you go, then you'd see motivation crumble quite quickly. I think it's, in terms of your your learning environment, what you're trying to do is you're trying to mitigate all the time and just through clever use of equipment, um, varied activities, fun activities, activities that are quite age-appropriate for children. You know, you try and replicate the things that they do on the playground that kids will naturally be, you know, sort of... um, Magnetized them to doing and you try and replicate as much of that as possible so it's more of an organic childhood experience and less of a, a training session mm. you know essentially kids you, you play football so it should be a, a play environment i think that's important and probably there's a bit of synergy there with the to having fun shouldn't they yeah the kids if yeah if you, you can if you can facilitate and create that then motivation is naturally higher you will get the outline cases where you know, some some kids they're just so doom and gloom. You could you know, you could let them score ten goals and you could let them do a blooming backflip off a onto a crash mat and get out your trampolines and just clap and tell them well done for an hour and get very little back from them because some kids are in that sort of bit of a depression where, you know, they sort of feel rubbish about stuff or they just don't enjoy the sport and they've they've been dragged down there because their dad wants them to play. So you get all different types of kids, you know, that that come through. But typically what, what we do is you know the motivation of the children to be child-centric. You can almost anticipate you know, those, those waning motivational cycles in kids, and you can you can anticipate that they're going to lose concentration if they, if they repeat the same same thing too much. So I would say that we we try we try and mitigate for that through careful planning, investment in equipment. We have two coaches in every class rather than just one. So if there's kids that need a bit of attention and support to lift the motivation, there's someone there to go work micro, one-to-one, like a teaching assistant, and there's someone there to conduct the session. So we try and invest in all those elements of our infrastructure and resourcing so that if there is a kid struggling to motivate himself, we've pretty much done everything we can, falling short of, pushing the kid in the back to getting <laughs> to him moving toward the ball you've done pretty much everything and so you can forgive yourself if that kid doesn't have the best experience and say well look we've done we've done everything we possibly can right the, the, the players have to bring just a minimum level of interest in what you're doing and without that you know it's it's difficult isn't it do you find that there's a much of a difference between what well,
1: you teach little girls as well
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, boys and girls. Yeah,
1: um, you find as much of a difference
2: Is it mixed classes? Like, is there much of a difference between it? Yeah, of course. I'd probably say between two and four percent of the kids that we having the program are, are, are young female players. I think I think what we tend to see is just a different. I think there is a difference between boys and girls. Um, everyone's got different opinions on that. I think I think that what we tend to see with the younger female players, is I think the concentration tends to be. Generally speaking, um, they can tend to stay on task for longer. I think they, the concentration, listening, I think that c- can be generally more obedient than boys. You know, I think the boys tend to fidget and want to move more. I think boys need to move to think more than girls do. And um, yeah, I think, you know, we, we, we do great things for the boys and the girls that come to the program. I'm so sure you guys will get young girls and boys in yours and th- th- there are definitely whether, whether it's look socially constructed or whether it's biological, that's for people to argue probably on another podcast. But we do tend to see a difference, and you know the, the girls that come into our classes, you know, absolutely love the way of teaching,
0: and mm. you know, tend to take a lot from it. I mean, there are like proven difference, differences, aren't they, between kind of girls, and boys, and developmentally? And that that book I talked about in obviously part one of this mm-hmm. one I can't remember Steve Rudolph book. That is the point of the book, is that boys develop less quickly than girls, right? And, that, and the argument that he makes, which is kind of Scandinavian, I think we do this, is, you know, boys start school later and then they're equal still. Because girls mm-hmm. have the potential to start earlier, is the argument, right? Mm-hmm. And obviously females are more agreeable, more conscientious usually yeah. as well. So if them to go and do something, they go and do it. And a lot of little boys will just go and start booting balls into the other net, oh, yeah. that's going to happen. Interestingly, I mean, we're, we're obviously embryonic here, but we're probably around about 50% girls to boys. And oh, I think, wow. yeah, it's pretty, pretty amazing that, really. And particularly, well, for, for a fighting school, you'd expect yeah, to be Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's because we don't market it as a fighting school, yeah, but yeah, yeah. I mean, it is. It's like combat, right? Yeah, but yeah. I think and, and it's amazing to see that. And I think that's positive for us and something that I wanted to build upon. You know, we have a lot of female adult members as well, don't we? Um, and that's just growing, and it's brilliant. You know, it's something to celebrate, isn't it? I think so, without a doubt, without a doubt. I was going to make a joke about uh, girls
1: scrapping in leads, but
0: <laughs> there's plenty of that going on. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, Matt, you talked a little bit. Uh, I mean, I think it might have even been near the end of the last podcast about um, is it the Brazilian sausage? Soccer school, mm-hmm. like they're a franchise. Mm-hmm. Do you ever see Catalan going to something like that?
2: Uh, who knows? Potentially, I, th- I think I think there is potential for that. I think being very high in the perfectionism scale, personally, and unless we got it absolutely right, and there's before you scale any business, I think you know you've you've got to have a hard conversation with yourself and be brutally honest and you know, for a young franchisee and someone who's maybe an older franchisee, a first-time franchisee who's going to run and and hit the ground um, moving with a soccer school, there are so many ways in which it, it could go wrong. You've got to have a pretty robust franchise model with the right systems, the right marketing platforms, the right blueprint, the right training system, the right parameters and recruitment process, And and unless all that was completely perfect, I I feel it'd be irresponsible, not to the franchisee, but to the, to the people that are going to subscribe to that franchise and go and, you know, train and take the kids there. If, if we hadn't perfected the model there's plenty of things within the local business, um, that I would still like to improve and you know, it's an iterative process, which, you know, 10 years in, um, we, we, we've had opportunities to franchise in the past. However, what you don't want to do with a franchise is sort of scale too quickly. And then, you know, potentially, the I know franchises that have, that have gone gone big, gone early with it, and they end up spending their lives driving up and down the country, putting out fires, supporting people who are not having a good time of it, and potential, potentially abandon a business that they no longer enjoy running because the, the blueprint's not right and the support mm. structures are not right. So I think until the local businesses, you know, optimized to what I feel to be an appropriate level where I've got potentially 10, 15 hours a week to support franchisees. That's not gonna happen anytime soon. Um, the, the standards we've set are so high that a franchise at the moment or certainly the next 18 months would definitely, the, the local business would definitely suffer if we start to shift emphasis onto a franchise model perhaps in three to five years time but again we, we if there was if there was an opportunity to grow a franchise business we, we would sort of grow it in the steady incremental way that we've grown the soccer school it's taken 10 kids um, sorry ten years to, to go from you know a few kids to a thousand it'd probably take another ten years to go from zero to maybe 10 15 franchises mm. because there are other models out there that that will tend to just, you know, sell franchises between sort of ten and thirty a year. Um, I wouldn't feel comfortable doing that because, I, I, I wouldn't have enough time to have that many relationships running simultaneously and, and keep the, your standards. Yeah, well, and the of, culture.
0: I mean, you spoke about yeah, last culture. time. That's the key. I mean, that's why people come to Catalan. It's the culture. Mm -hmm. It's like they they want that. Yes, they want great football coaching, but they can go and get coaching two minutes from the front door. Why do they drive there? It's two things. It's either because they perceive the level of coaching and therefore they've got a child they want to push to that higher level. Or I would suggest nine times out of ten it's the culture. Mm -hmm. The kids just feel better when they leave. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And you have to replicate that culture. And then you talked before about the culture of the people. So that it's getting the right people, and then not selling to people that aren't going to be able to do that. Yeah, um, and, and ideally, clean. I
2: think anyone who is ever going to franchise a business, it, it would be it'd be desirable to work with that franchisee and to, to home grow the franchisee. You know, rather than just advertise it on some website, someone comes in. I mean, look, there are certain businesses that franchise easier than others. So I imagine if you want to franchise a Starbucks or Krispy Kreme donut shack in the you know in, in the local shopping centre. These businesses are very well-oiled machines. They've got the production, supply lines. They've got they've got all these things in place. But because because football coaching isn't a transactional business where you just you know you're retailing out a product. It's all built on relationships. Service. That person has to be the right person. It is service. It's a it's a customer service business. So to find the right person that you trust to run and you know, essentially child mind, a baby version of your business. It's like, it is like trusting someone with your kids. I mean, it's the
0: only, it, the only way Gracie Bar have managed to kind of grow to this, you know, nearly thousands of schools worldwide is that they, they certify all their instructors every single year. Then you have to have certain things in your academy. and The brand has to be strong. And the way you teach, you have to teach the same curriculum and you're certified on that, on a, you know, on an annual basis. The checks and balances are strong, yeah. and that's you'd have to do that. So, if if not a franchise, then the obvious question is: Well, what what's the legacy? What's the future then for Matt and for, for for Catalan? Is that is that one in the same thing, or is it two things? Is it because um, it's Matt the person, right? We never really yeah. spoke about you. Well, we did <laughs> early on in the first, in the first one, yeah. one, but so I mean, like, what's what's the legacy then? Well,
2: I think I think it's difficult. So, you know, what was the initial goal? If you listen to part one, it was to just make a living from football. And Whether that be a, a thousand quid a month, living in sort of your mum's back bedroom, or whether it be on in your own house one day and you know, making a making an average UK salary, you know that that goal has been achieved for the most part. So then you have to reset your goals, don't you? And look for the next Everest point, and um, you know the, the next one was there. Were certain goals that, that are sort of arbitrary, you know, a thousand kids is arbitrary, two thousand kids, five thousand kids. Where do you stop? And I think you need to be careful setting yourself. Goals that will, once materialised, will then just shift. And I think you're better off with sort of principle goals. You know, so um, to improve the lives of as many children as possible through football is a goal which is will never run out of gas, and you'll you'll never you'll never reach that goal. And therefore, you know what a journey you've got before you. you you'll never run out of motivation because the goal is transcends any number or or anything that you might otherwise consider to have hit. So I think for the business at this minute, I mean, you've got to take the COVID and pandemic stuff and you've got to factor that in and say, well, look, no matter what your aspiration is long-term, you've got to survive now. You've got to feed your kids. You've got to get coaches on pitches. You've got to retain your staff. So certainly we've got goals for this year, which essentially to stabilize, to come back stronger and to lift kids out of the, well, disgraceful 12 months of childhood. That they've just experienced. Oh, we, um, share, we share that. Yeah, absolutely, man. It's like so that that in essence, yeah. Uh, you know, I don't want to think five years down the line. I'm looking at the next six to twelve months. We we experienced that on some of our bounce back classes, which essentially, when the government said you can run up to six people outdoor, we run these little micro groups of you know between four and six kids. And you know, there's there's kids coming in after after three months of lockdown, no school. You got obesity issues kids that have developed a social awkwardness, kids that were high-fiving, you know, hugging you in in February, March, can't make eye contact, kids that were socialising and and telling jokes and putting the hand up are are just these sheepish, introverted, you know, like haunted children. Mm. Um, I mean, that's that's the first set of priorities. You know, be damned with anything that I want personally from my life over the next two or three years. It's, you've got a responsibility to these kids that you've enrolled into your programme that have just had a year of the childhood stolen from them for whatever, you know, whatever reason um, and the merits of, of, of that is a little bit irrelevant, you've got a problem in front of you and you, you need to deal with it. So we'll see how we do on the other side of that, you know, making sure that the guys that have committed to a full-time job at Catalan Soccer that have council tax and rent and bills and you know, guys that could have gone back to Hertfordshire after uni that have stayed on with us full-time, these guys that have stayed with us through the most difficult moments of the business the responsibilities that the wages are paid, that we protect these guys' livelihoods as well as protect the, provide that continuity and that, that uplift for the, for the kids that are going to come back to us and, and be needing something um, motivational and, and supportive and, and to find that warm environment. That, that's the next set of objectives. on Long term, it's, yeah, we want, want to affect more kids. Um, We're not just going to kid ourselves and everything. We can have 5,000 down at Kirkstall and Leeds because Again, it's a multivariate. It's the number of kids that play football, the number of parents that are willing to travel a 15, 20-minute radius, the number of good coaches that you can find that can you know, maintain your culture, um, accessibility. You've got all these things that will there will be a natural tailing off. There'll be a diminishing point where we might settle on 1,500 kids. So it's, it's pointless coming up with unrealistic goals that you're never going to hit. So we'll, we'll settle the business. We'll look to do a few hundred more. Um, protect all the the full-time jobs of the guys that come here, give those guys as as good a quality of life as possible, increasing the amount of holiday hours that they get, trying to give them, you know, job not just job satisfaction, but a good work-life balance from from the opportunity that we offer. And then from there, you know, hopefully we can can look to kick on again, whether that be franchise, whether it be doing more stuff in nurseries and, and reaching kids a little bit sooner, with some of the positive experience of of football that we can offer. Um, I think we've just got to get through the next six to 12 months and just hit those short-term objectives before we look any further. I think anything further than that would just be a distraction at this minute in time.
1: Yeah, it's amazing when you kind of frame it as in the context of like a whole year of a kid's life has been like taken away, which essentially has, right? And then you think about how much would like... If you had to like sell like a year of your life, how much would you sell it for? Be like hundreds of millions? Of like more, right? <laughs> yeah. like I'm not just gonna give away a year of my life type thing. And
2: yeah, the, uh, the is cost how, is how, massive. How right? much would you pay to buy that time back? Mm. You know, I, I think kids in particular, and, and obviously as, as kids' activity providers, we've all got to think about these things very seriously. You know, kids have. I've said to Mike before, in, on, off the book sort of personal chat. You know, kids have this, this sort of age range between sort of four and eight, where there's there's still a bit of magic. They still believe in Santa. They still believe in the Easter bunny. You know, the birthdays between the ages four and eight still have that magic the anticipation. And then, you know, kids find out Santa's, you know, maybe not what they thought he is, and maybe I, he is. Maybe he is, you know. Who knows? Maybe maybe they're told that and maybe they're not. Um, so you have all these. You know, childhood, the magic of childhood. They have a little four, five-year sort of sweet spot. Between the ages one and three, they don't really know what's going on. Um, Between the ages four and eight, you've got this sort of magical window of opportunity. And essentially, so my little boy who's four, his birthday's on the 21st of March. Had the worst possible date for a birthday, considering the shutdown, you know, the whole economy and society last March. So this is his second lockdown birthday. Yeah, and it, it, it's just absolutely heartbreaking that out of his sort of four or five magical birthdays, he, he's had two of them taken away. And I think people, you know, people say, "Oh, kids are resilient." It's like, no, no, you don't see the damage done to children until they're older. Correct. So it's not just that nothing harms a child and they can put, you know,
0: every, everything, everything, everything um, adds up to the person they become. Everything, every experience. Good, bad, and indifferent? I believe so. I, I, I think well, kids... I know so. Yeah, we know so, right? Kids don't... Th- you know, it's true that kids don't throw in the towel. And,
2: you know, the, the childhood suicide rate is probably nowhere near the adult male suicide rate. So, yeah, kids are... Oh, they're resi- just growing? Resilient, yeah, absolutely. And, and they, will, they will survive childhood. You know, the kids that grow up in, you know, Yemen, Sierra Leone, these war-stricken, you know, th- these poverty-stricken and, and war-stricken societies... They might watch women beheading in the local village, or the the father get dragged away by by rebels or government troops. And yeah, kids will grow a numbness to this stuff, but it just just comes out later on. And I think just to dismiss the whole mental health of children and just for for some people to take the position of, well, kids are resilient, they can deal with anything they'll grow through, it's like, well, you know, we're not going to know the true impact of COVID until we've got a lot of mid 20 year olds that have, you know and, and, and for these for these consequences to manifest in adult life i think what we've got to do now is we've got to we've got to treat every single child that comes through as a jiu-jitsu student or a, a young aspiring footballer we've, we've got to treat them um in a restorative way because some kids might not demonstrate this i mean key workers kids have been at school and you know some kids have, have got a big garden at home and might have cousins that have been you know sort of maybe illegally bubbling with and, and playing games with and stuff in the garden some kids have, have you know had a year in, in a high-rise flat somewhere with no garden maybe a single parent family you know with alcohol and and all the other stuff that people and all, all the other crutches and coping mechanisms that maybe isolated parents have been leaning upon to get them through this period all the financial constraints and these kids coming back to us we, we we've got to take that like damn seriously that that's our first job to get these kids back on the feet, and not just write it off as all kids bounce back; they'll be fine in in a few weeks. Because there's um, you know, there's definitely been a damage done here, which is, is beyond measure and not anything that we can quantify. I think we've we've got the platform.
0: As yeah, providers. I think we can. I think we can make it right. I think if. You know, any experience, any traumatic experience to any degree can can will always be there, but it can be pushed aside with positivity, right? Like we don't need to dwell. You know, we need to need to fix. Mm -hmm. How do we fix it? Well, we make them feel good again, don't we? Mm -hmm. You know, we make them we we make twice as hard that they feel great about themselves and that they have got a future. and we put this one year I mean it's just no different to the war, right? People keep comparing it to the war, it's the same thing. You you can recover from it. There will be there will be good times ahead. We've just gotta yeah, we've got a think There will
2: be. I mean I, I've I try I try and do some thoughtful analysis on on if there's anything comparable ever that's happened to let's say generations of children in the last hundred years in Britain. And you know, war comes with its own trauma and its own fear and its own anxieties and stuff, but you know, kids playing with one another. Um, I think kids were still going to school in the war. Is that correct? I mean, there might have been sirens go off and you've got to run for cover. And I probably don't know enough about it to really talk about it. But I think isolation is proven to be the worst thing you can do to a human being. It is just the worst thing. It's why,
0: you know... A lot lot of kids were separated from the family, of course, in the war, you know what I mean? They were sent out of the cities, weren't they, to the countryside and stuff, which is, I suppose, a similar-ish... You know, even though we've been locked in with our parents, we were separated from external family and things like that. So there's some kind of correlation, I suppose, yeah. there.
2: Yeah. And again, I, I don't know enough about it and not really studied the subject, but I just think that this this is really unique for the kids that have particularly not not the ones that have had the opportunity to go to school. Um, where I just I just think it's potentially been been so damaging. I mean the I've been sort of studying quite a bit about sort of, you know, development of of children and I try and take a scientific approach as well as you know, an emotional approach to working with these kids, um, just to balance things out. I mean, there's there's been research, probably relevant, more relevant to what you guys do than what we do, but was, you know, research from um, like the play systems in kids, like you know, affective neuroscience. I think it was an Estonian professor, I forget his name, but um, I, th- I think it's important that that we we do whatever we can to to accelerate that contact back between children because. This research, it's about rats and they've studied rats for a while and it turns out that rats have play systems. Um, they even they even laugh. You can tickle a rat and there's a hypersonic no, sound that comes out of a rat and it actually laughs when you tickle it, um, mm-hmm. which wasn't known. Um, so the, the, there's all these different outcomes from this study and essentially the, the outcome is this, that what they found was that like play, sort of especially tactile and contact play, is... is Pivotal in the development of the prefrontal cortex in children and mammals in general, so it's a mammal play system. So it even extends right through to the, the development of sort of babies and infants. The impact of what skin skin to skin contact and tactile tactile play can have, and so what they found was that if you got two, you put two rats in um, in a cage together, and um, first of all, the rats will seek out to play with one another. If a rat is ten percent bigger than the other rat then it will win 90% of the time. What they'll tend to do is they'll pin each other. So in the same way that, you know, sort of dogs or cats will sort of pin each other. Or well, Jiu-Jitsu players. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So, and what they found is that, uh, well, initially they, they speculated that, you know, play was a way of a certain dominance and a way to sort of train yourself to be, like lines that were done, that, you know, to, to train them to fight for when they're older as, yeah. as a survival skill. But actually what they found is that um, the, the, the smaller rat, If if it didn't win at least thirty percent of the time, then it would it would stop playing. And so, what the old the older rats figured, so the bigger rats figured this out as well. So, although it's capable of winning ninety percent of the time, it would as a reciprocity would actually let. So, a a bigger rat will let the smaller rat win Mm. at least thirty percent of the time, even though it's capable of to keep it playing to keep it playing because it's an iterative game over time, right? Um, And so this comes down to sort of contact and the benefit of contact and how, as mammals, we seek out contact. And th- there was also a, a study which um, it was basically focused around premature infants. So infants that were born premature, that were essentially in incubators in quite a cold, isolated environment. A, a, a premature baby that was massaged for 10 minutes, three times a day, on average left hospital five days earlier. than an infant that that wasn't and um and also if it was massaged three times a day for like 10 minutes it actually gained weight whereas the infants that had no contact didn't so this and it all this all feeds into the the requirement for children to engage to play to make contact with one another whether it's to fight wrestle shoulder barge high five at a football session the appetite—it's not just the the social science; it's the the biological systems at play. We have to understand that deprivation of those systems is having deep-rooted biological effects. The social
0: case. creatures, aren't we? You know, we we need it. Simple as that.
1: I, would, I wonder if those effects of social distancing and the psychology of children will have longer-lasting effects, rather than you know. When come June twenty first, when it is, and they others say, "Okay, we're all good now," back back to as it were. if Kids would be like, "Well, like yesterday, you were saying, don't go near that that other kid because he might cough on me or something, right?" I I wonder if if that psychology will uh, continue for a longer time and affect the things that you're talking about there with like. I'm not sure. I mean, play. I th-
0: I think kids will. Well, my my personal experience, it maybe it's skewed because obviously. I've got two boys, quite similar in age. They have got each other. I think they will will get back to normal pretty quick. I think the it's the longer term, hidden impact of missing out in critical formative years, the ability to socially interact on a tactile level. And you talk about kind of like, I suppose relationships, loving relationships. You know how how will that work? when you're not used to giving, taking, sharing, and that's been taken away a large slice. We talked about, you know, a year of a seven-year-old's life. That's a decade for a 70-year-old. Oh, yeah. You know, it's massive. So there's going to be, maybe it's hidden. It's like, you know, we talk about, I I can talk about this openly, my own experience of my parents divorcing fundamentally changed who I am and my brother and sister in three different ways, but fundamentally changed who I am forever. And I know that, and I've unpicked it. Um, and this experience for children will affect all of them in a slightly different way. Mm-hmm. may not manifest itself in something visible, but internal, it'll be there. I'd, I'd
2: agree.
1: There is a bit of light coming to the end of the tunnel, though, with ending of uh, restrictions coming soon, and hopefully
0: a beautiful summer. But it's not something yeah. negative dwell. I think. Yeah. It's actually really good that we notice it, because if you notice it, you can repair things. You, can, you can't You can change what's happened. You can't change the past, but you can make the future damn sight better. So, you know, my plea to anyone listening to this would be give your children more opportunity to do that now. If you were wondering whether or not they should go to a football or jiu-jitsu class, shouldn't be wondering anymore. Like, you've got to take them because mm-hmm. we've got a responsibility to give them more than they had before, right? Get them off them screens get them playing with each other, get them wrestling around on the floor with the peers, get them high-fiving on a football session, get them active, get them outside, get them eating healthy again. That's what we need to be doing.
2: Yeah, I mean, we've already architected into the the curriculum over the next few months. There'll there'll be a hell of a lot more contact. There'll be rough rough and tumble play. There'll be a lot of one-to-one and a lot of just rebuilding just a physical connection between kids. Um, Might not sit well with some parents. I think... You know, obviously there's been a, a pretty strong rhetoric from government, scientists and sage and whoever else has wanted to, um, you know, influence the behaviour of the public and you know, a lot of that for, for good reasons and, and well intentioned. But um, we, we, need, we believe, and maybe it's a political belief or spiritual belief, but we, we believe that we need to get our kids making contact with one another again, you know, in, 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 in a manner that is accelerated than how we might have done it previously. Because we need to offset, you know, the past year where they've been, yeah, you know, not not robbed of those things, but they've they've certainly been restrained and restricted. So we're we're going to be doing lots of lots of that stuff within our football sessions and just exploring physicality, exploring movement, doing lots of um, lots of games where there's physical exchanges. Because we, we might need to undo that for a few kids.
0: I mean, what is it? It's a hog, isn't it? Yeah. That's what it is. Jiu-jitsu rough and tumble football is a hug and we all know that hugs make us feel good right, cuddles mm-hmm. make us feel good that's what it is so we've got to do more of that with our kids man, for sure I'd agree
1: excellent well somehow we've already blasted through another hour and a quarter <laughs> part three's going up
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so uh, I think think we should leave it there unless you guys had anything in
2: particular you wanted to talk about or mention no I mean I'd just like to say thank you to you guys you know for, for listening to me ramble on for Mike. the past three hours I think anyone who's made it to this stage in the podcast there'll be a few a membership to. Mike um, <laughs> yeah, definitely we'll have to drop some Easter eggs through the future podcasts and find yeah. people listening all the way through That's right, every yeah. 15 minutes um, it's not a bad idea uh, but now I, I want to say thank you to the guys for listening thank you to you guys for listening to me and sharing some of your views and opinions I think it's, it's a privilege for me to come here and represent Catalan Soccer and Matthew Ogden as a person, um, and as, as an educator of young people, and a, as a, as a coach, and and as someone who's got an aspiration for humanity and kids within our society to do well and to and to become better people from the experiences through sport and and through the teachings that we can hopefully give them um, to to improve their lives and uh, you know message to parents would be whether this be a, a you know, football thing or a ju- jiu-jitsu thing or a tennis thing, whatever it is for you and your kids, um, I think to to get them back out there as quick as we possibly can and to embrace anything that is social in terms of the outcomes for children is, is absolutely huge and I think if any of us have got any sense, we should be putting that on the pedestal on which it belongs and whether it be, you know, like I say, um, a football thing or, or a golf thing or a swimming thing I think that we've got to get the kids back out there um, Catland Soccer for one will be throwing the kitchen sink at, at this in terms of provision extra coaches extra equipment um, and, and just advice and support you know if um, if any parents out there want to jump on our YouTube channel there's free videos free content for if kids need confidence before they come back to a group setting you know, the stuff out there, free content for the kids to go and upskill and, and do some stuff in the garden. And, um, yeah, any support that they need, more than welcome to get in touch. And then um, just search Catalan Soccer. I'll come through you guys and I'm sure we can offer something back. Excellent, yeah. And we'll put all the links in the description for all of uh, Matt's
1: uh, social and for Catalan on YouTube and everything like that.
0: Put Mike, anything? No, thank you for coming, man. It's been inspirational for me. So, um, you know, we've got a relationship outside of kind of business friendship, right? And um, again, thank you for what you've done for my children. The role of a coach cannot be underestimated, in my view, as a parent. Um, And we hope to be able to do that to our little champions too, right? Thanks for your time, man. Thanks, man. Cheers, guys. Thank Thank you. you.